0: So, if you will, open up with me this morning to the book of John. We are going to be in John chapter 1, we're going to be in the first 18 verses. And as we look at John this morning, we notice each of the Gospels presents Christ with a distinctive emphasis. As we look at Matthew, Matthew shows that Jesus came from Abraham through David, and demonstrates that He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Mark shows that Jesus came from Nazareth, demonstrating that Jesus is a servant. As we walked through the book of Luke for years, we saw time and time again that Jesus came from Adam, demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect man. And then John shows that Jesus came from heaven, demonstrating that Jesus is God. And it, it's, it's so cool, and it's, it's great that we have these four Gospels where, you know, they each emphasize different aspects, where they are sharing the true story of Jesus. But as, as authors do, each of them has this thing that they are emphasizing, and it allows them, it allows the four Gospels to come together and give us this complete Gospel story. And John is unique in his powerful presentation of Jesus as the great Creator God of the universe. And so, as we look to these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, it's, it's incredible. It introduces us to some of the major ideas of the book, the cosmic Christ who came as light into the world, who suffered rejection but gave grace upon grace to those who received Him. It gives us a sense of the matchless uh, greatness of Christ, of the greatness of His love, and the greatness of His grace. And this is especially important for us today, because secular culture and even many major non-Christian religions speak of someone named Jesus. But as we see their definitions of who that Jesus is, they are far from Scripture, and just to give a couple examples, as we, if you were to, to talk to a Muslim and ask them about Jesus, they would tell you, oh, no, we think Jesus is great. We have a very high view of Jesus. And then you would continue to talk to them, and you would realize they believe that Jesus was a great prophet, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. If you talk to uh, Jehovah's Witness, I mean, we would see that they translate the passage that we're going to read today to say that the word was a God. Not the God, but little g, a God, which is a grossly misleading and blatantly incorrect translation of the Greek. And so, we see in these major non-Christian religions, that list could go on, but I'm not going to dwell in that this morning. We see that their definition of Jesus is far different from the Jesus of the Bible. And we hear many in our culture that claim that Jesus was a great teacher or a prophet and maybe someone that we should take some things from, but someone that we should leave out others, usually coming to the conclusion that He just wants us to be good people. Now, do they look at what Jesus actually said? And for some, maybe. And for others, maybe not. But the line that we often hear is the Jesus I believe in wouldn't say this or that. But you can't create your own definition of Jesus and just throw that title of Jesus on it. It doesn't work that way. And because of this, because we understand this as we live in this culture and we have all of these different people's definition of who Jesus is, it is crucial That Christians know Jesus Christ very well. And that we can tell the difference between the Christ of the Bible and the Christ which other religions and cultures claim to honor. Well, one of the great things about this passage in John is that John shows us exactly who Jesus is right here. And so let's read John 1 1 through 18. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Dear God, as we open up Your Word, as we read these first 18 verses in the Gospel of John, God, I pray that you help us to see what you are saying through the Apostle John to the original audience of this passage. And God, help us to see what you are saying to us through this today. Help us to see who Jesus is. And so, God, as I preach this passage, I pray that you speak through me, God, that you empower me to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the first thing that we see here we see in the first three verses, and this is the greatness of Christ. We see here that Christ is eternally preexistent. It says, in the beginning was the Word. There was never a time when Christ did not exist, because the Word was, <clears throat> that is in the Greek imperfect tense here, it means was continuing. And so, in fact, the, the whole first verse bears this sense. In the beginning was continuing the Word, and the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continually with God. So we see that Christ is eternally pre existent. We also see that Christ is eternally in relationship with the Father. We see next the apostle adds the Word was with God. Literally, the Word was continually toward God. The Father and the Son were continually face to face, and that preposition, with, bears the idea of nearness along with a sense of movement toward God. That is to say that there has always existed the deepest quality and intimacy within the Holy Trinity. We see in these first three verses that Jesus is eternally God. As the final phrase of verse 1 adds, and the Word was God. The exact meaning is that the Word was God in essence and in character. He was God in every way, though He was a separate person from God the Father. The phrase perfectly preserves Jesus' separate identity while also stating that He is God, not a God, but God. God. This was his continuing identity from all eternity. He was God constantly. Jesus was always existing from all eternity as God, in perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And finally, we see that Jesus is eternally creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The fact of Christ's creatorship is the consistent witness of the New Testament. Nothing has come into the world. Nothing has snuck its way into the world apart from the sovereign purpose of God who created everything. And so John asserts without equivocation or qualification, all was made through Jesus. And without Jesus nothing was made. And so we see the greatness of Christ right off the bat in these first three verses. And we continue in as we get into, into the body of this passage. In so verses 4 through 13, we see the greatness of Christ's love. In verses 4 to 13, the metaphor of Christ as light stresses the revelation, the rejection, and the reception of His love as it came into the world verses 4 and 5, we see the light revealed. In clearest terms, Christ is described as light, saying, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And there is ample scriptural evidence that Christ is light in a physical sense, for He appears as such in glory. But the emphasis here is on His being spiritual, life-giving light to a dark world. Verse 9 reveals that all humanity benefits from this light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John did not mean that the Word gives this light to everyone in the ultimate saving sense. What he meant was that the reason why anyone is born into a world with any love or care or goodness at all is because of the true light, which gives light to the world. (coughs) And the thought of our Lord being spiritual light gives us a heartening insight into His loving attempt to reach the world. Where light goes, if light goes into an area, well, the darkness in that area is dispelled, revealing the true nature of life. The light shines in the darkness, Literally, this means it shines continually in the darkness, meaning that Christ is continually bombarding every corner of our hearts of darkness through the work of His Holy Spirit in nature, and in conscience, and in the Scriptures. But how was that light received? Sadly, we know that the majority of mankind has rejected the light. Verse 5 concludes, and the darkness has not overcome it. As I grew up in a Christian home in America back in the 90s, as as I was a kid, I used to just think that, well, most people in the world are probably Christians. As I had looked at it through my point of view, I was was born, I was raised in the church. Most of the people that I knew were Christians, Christians. Now I have a lot of family that's not, but still in my mind it was like, yeah, most people are Christians, and then as I got older and older, not not really older and older, just a little bit older, I very quickly realized that's not the case. Yeah, I'm not even thirty yet, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized even in childhood, as I got a little bit older, that's not the reality. I looked out into the world, we see it's very evident that most reject Him. I mean, I grew up in in the north, and most of the people that I knew, most of my friends, like, even that didn't go to my church from school, they were raised Catholic, but not Catholic even in the sense of, like, they were going to church. They, were, they didn't eat meat on Fridays during Lent, and that was it. And so, I, I, I came to realize even people that say, I believe in Jesus, a lot of times that definition of Jesus is different. And so, I I realized, okay, well, most people do reject Him. The light is met with tremendous resistance. And verses 10 and 11 show this. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Think of it. The one who said, let there be light… The one whose love constrained him to shine his saving light through creation and conscience. The one who mercifully sheathed his light in a human body so that he might bring light to men. The one who set aside a special people for himself to be a light to the nations. This one was rejected. And this shows us very clearly how deeply fallen human nature is. Yet today, He is still light, and in His amazing love, He continues to seek to pry His way into hostile hearts. And though we sit here and we see, yes, most reject Him, some respond. We see in verses 12 and 13, the light received, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Charles Spurgeon said, Faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream, the penniless hand held out for heavenly alms. Those who receive the light become children of God. This is an incredible truth. And apparently John never got over it because when he was an old man, he wrote in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This ought to be the refrain of our lives if we have believed in Him. And furthermore, the future holds out to us this bright prospect of becoming like the risen Christ Himself. John follows this statement of wonder with a statement of even greater wonder. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We should read this, and this should bring us great joy. In the language of John 1, the cosmic Christ, the eternal Creator who became one of us, took our sins upon Himself and paid for them. He was resurrected, and now He sits at the Father's right hand. Do you truly believe in Him and His name? That's the question. And there is nothing to join, nothing to sign, simply believe. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But some did. And to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And it wasn't the people that we would think, you know, sitting here in in earthly terms. It wasn't the religious elite. It wasn't the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It wasn't the elite at all. It wasn't the crowds. At times, it was the tax collector, It was someone who went away from the crowd and said, I believe Christ is the Messiah. We don't go to heaven with the crowd. The crowd goes down the road to destruction, but the way that leads to heaven is a narrow way. We once were slaves to our sin. We were strangers and enemies and aliens. But when we trust in Christ, we are the children of God. That is the greatness of Christ and His love. And We see in verses 14 through 18, as we see the greatness of Christ and His love, we then see the greatness of Christ's grace. At the end of John's prologue, the mention of grace becomes prominent. Verses 14 to 17, except for the parenthetical reference to John the Baptist in verse 15, they all refer to grace. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Only now at verse 14 is it specified that the Word is Jesus. As John writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in verse 1, John had articulated the divinity and the eternality of the Word, as well as his distinguishability from the Father. Well, now he communicates how profound the incarnation is. The Word became flesh. God became man. And when Jesus did this, when the Word became flesh, Jesus did not cease to be the Word when He became flesh. John explains that when Jesus became flesh and dwelt in the midst of humanity, men and women saw His glory, and they saw it here characterized as full of grace and truth. And the idea behind that phrase, dwelt among us, uh, put more literally, it meant as dwelt as in a tent among us. From the sense and the context, John connected the coming of Jesus to humanity with God's coming to and living with Israel in the tent of the tabernacle. It it could be stated, and tabernacled among us. And this is really relevant because the tabernacle is many things that Jesus is among His people. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp. It was the place where the law of Moses was preserved. It was the dwelling place of God, the place of revelation the place where sacrifices were made, the center of Israel's worship. And if God has come to dwell among men by the Word made flesh, will we do well to pitch our tents around Him? John described this experience in this way, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so we ask, well, what exactly does John mean by that here? Well, as the grace that you receive is appropriated and allowed to work in your life, more and more grace will come. And so, it's not like if I had like a two-liter of Coca-Cola, and I, you know, I poured you a cup and gave you some, and now you have some Coca-Cola, I have some still, but I don't have as much. I have less. It's not like that at all. Christ is the chief source of all grace. And so, even if the entire world were to draw from that fountain, it would not lose a drop. It constantly overflows with sheer grace. And so, for those without grace, grace is readily available. There is more than enough grace to cover your sins and to give you an overflowing, victorious life. And for those who know Christ. Our text makes it clear that, for, uh, that from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We have it now, and grace is heaped upon grace as we walk with Him. John concludes his prologue in verse 18 with this sentence, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus is the explanation of God the Father. The greatness of Christ explains the greatness of the Father. The greatness of Christ's love explains the greatness of the Father's love, and the greatness of Christ's grace explains the greatness of the Father's grace. So, how do we respond? We see in this passage the greatness of Christ We see His matchless love, and we see the light revealed to us. We see His incredible grace, and we also see how so many in our world reject it. And so, we sit here this morning and we ask, well, right now, what do I do? What do I do with this information? And for this, we look back to verses 6, 7, 8, and 15. These verses are surprising because they seem to break into the flow of the text. At first glance, it's odd. If you left them out, the text would flow very nicely from verse 5 to verse 9. I mean, verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 9 picks that up. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That's a nice, natural flow. But in between these two statements about Jesus, John inserts verses 6 through 8 about John the Baptist. And then the same thing happens again in verse 15. Verse 14 says, "'And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.'" And verse 16 continues that thought smoothly. "'And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace.'" But verse 15 breaks right into the middle of that and says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. At first glance, it's, it's odd placement. It's odd to read. It makes the typical formula of, of, of preparing a sermon a little bit more tricky. It's, it's, it's odd. But it's not accidental. It's not that, that John was writing this gospel and he had this on, he's like, oh, man, i got to mention John the Baptist. Uh, I'll throw it in here, I'll throw it in there. It's not great, but it'll, it'll work. It, it can do. This is not like that at all. These, these thought-interrupting verses are not accidental. They are greatly important because they show us, as we are, rem- are told and as we read back and are reminded of the light, they show us how to respond to the light. They give us that answer of how do we respond. Well, we respond with our witness. Our witness is a massive necessity. But before I get into that, I also want to note that it's not because we are so great that our witness is such a necessity. It is because God desires to work through His people. Notice, at at the very core, the most basic answer to this question, who was John the Baptist? Well, John was a man. John was a person. And so, we see, we read this passage, we see the Word, Jesus Christ, the Creator of all things, and it would make sense to assume that the Word, the life, the light would spread by its own power in a spectacular show of power. But John knows that's not how it will spread. It will spread through the witness of human beings, people like you and me, through us. John 20, 31 says, these things are written that you might believe. And so, again, we ask, well, who who wrote them? Who wrote this gospel? Well, a man sent from God also named John. I have a lot of Johns in this passage. The gospel will be spread through human beings witnesses. Verse 6 says there was a man. And there will always be a person, a person like us. And John is pressing into his gospel from the very beginning the truth that human witnesses to Christ are always necessary. But the continuation of verse 6 is really important. Cuz it's not just that there was a man, but that there was a man sent from God, reminding us where this is coming from. Because again, it's not that we were just the perfect person to spread the gospel and God could never do it without us. We see time and time again throughout the Scriptures that God uses imperfect people, people who clearly could not do the things that God called them to do by their own power, and He does that to show that He is the one empowering them that He is the one at work empowering His people to do things they could have never done on their own, that God is orchestrating this. God was involved not just in the sending of Jesus, but He is involved in sending witnesses to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew nine thirty eight, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. God sees to it, that we pray. And He sees to it that He answers and sends. He said to His disciples in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And He said to Paul in Acts twenty two twenty one, 21, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so, God makes human witnesses necessary but He doesn't leave His mission to the initiative of man. No, He sends. We serve not just a saving God, but a sending God. He provides the foundation of our salvation in Jesus, and He provides the means of our salvation in those whom He sends. And so, we read this passage, and we are told, John the Baptist was not the light. He was a man And he was sent by God to bear witness about the light. And that same God calls us to bear witness to the light as well. And verse 7 gives us the why. He doesn't just say, you know, do this and, and just because I said so. It gives us why. Why is this witness so important that all might believe through him? Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. Believing happens through a witness. As we share the gospel, you know, as people hear the gospel, it's important that they hear it, that it is articulated to them. And so, our witness to Christ is extremely important. It is extremely necessary, but still not because of anything in us but because God chose to spread the light through His people. Verse 8 tells us He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, talking of John the Baptist. And, and as we look through John just in chapter 1, John the Baptist either says or said about Him, I am not the light, I am not the Christ, I am not Elijah, I am not the prophet, I am not worthy to untie His sandals. And if you want a beautiful statement of this principle in our witness for Christ, listen to John 3, 28 to 30. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If we are faithful witnesses, the attention is not on us. It is all on Christ. We must decrease. He must increase. We know that we are sinners saved by the grace of God, and we rejoice in Christ. We just did that this morning as we took the Lord's Supper. We rejoice that we are saved by the grace of God. But still, as we go through this passage, we still ask, why is it so necessary to interrupt the middle of this passage on who Jesus, the light is, to go and talk about John the Baptist? Because John is the necessary witness who is not the Christ, and in his mouth are not self-exalting words, but Christ-exalting words. And so, John the Baptist no longer lives on this earth, but in John the Evangelist's gospel, he continues to testify. Are you accepting or rejecting his testimony? John bore witness to the light. Do you believe that the light has dawned in Jesus? For those of us who believe that Jesus is the light, well, we should note that John the Evangelist has joined with John the Baptist in bearing witness so that others will believe. And those of us who believe should then join these two Johns in the great work of bearing witness for belief. We should go out into our mission field, and as we say all of the time here at Seaford, that we should go and be His workmanship, that we should testify that the light has dawned and call others to faith in Christ. That's the lesson for us. We must be His witnesses. And faith, we must remember, faith comes by hearing a witness. But as we go out and we do that, we also need to remember that we are sinners saved by grace, and we don't go out there and make much of ourselves because we are sinners saved by grace, but that we go out and we make much of Jesus. Remember that from the very beginning of John's gospel, there is a human witness to the light, our witness. And what an example John gives us in our witness. It was clear He must increase. We must decrease. And so, this opening of John, these first 18 verses, they show us the greatness of Christ, the greatness of His love, the greatness of His grace, and then it shows us how God spreads the news of the light of Jesus through His people, through us. And as we look at that, there are two ways for us to respond to this news today, In verses 10 and 11, we see He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. And so, you might be sitting here this morning, and you might hear all of this and say, I don't know Him, and I don't receive Him. And if that's your response, I plead with you. Don't say that lightly. At the very least, think through that. But The other response is found in verses 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the response that I pray for this morning receive this great Word made flesh. Receive Him as Savior and King and God and Word and Creator and life and light and all that God is for you in Him. And go and be a witness of the light of Jesus. At this time, the band is going to to come up, and I'm going to pray but I do want to say, if this is you today, let today be the day of salvation. If you have questions about this, I would love to talk to you. And there's a couple ways you could do that. You can either text us or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com, and we will be glad to get right in touch with you. But also, I'm right here. Pastor Ben is here, and I'll be right there to meet the pastor table after the service. We would love to talk to you. And so, if you have questions about this, if you have have trusted in Christ as your Savior, I would love to talk to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray now in Jesus' great name that You would incline our hearts to believe in Jesus, to believe that He is the Lord, that He is so great that the greatest man is not worthy to untie his sandals, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of anyone in the world who believes, that He is the very Son of God, that He is the Bridegroom and all who follow Him are His beloved and cherished bride, that He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, He pours His Spirit out upon those who believe, swallows us up in the spirit of His love, and gives us life, abundant, overflowing, excessive life upon life. And so, God, we pray that You help us to truly believe that this morning. And as we believe that, God, I pray that You are at work through us. Help us to be Your workmanship. Help us to be strong witnesses of Christ that exalt Him and not ourselves that in our witness we decrease, and that we make much of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.